Good morning to you. It's good to see each of you today. I'd ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. Imagine with me for a moment that you flipped on the news tonight and you received news that U.S. Special Forces had conducted a very vital mission in Iraq, right in the heart of ISIS territory. And they captured Jihadi John. We all recognize him from some of the gory, horrific videos and beheadings and so forth. And, and uh, so this influ- influential leader is captured. But something amazing happens. While he's in a holding cell, a pastor gets in there and shares the gospel with him. And this man is converted, repents of his sin, his horrible, deplorable, brutal sins, and God saves him. Would you believe it if you heard reports? Would you be tempted to doubt it? Come on, God could never save someone like that. You see, can God really save the worst of sinners? And, and how you answer that question is how you view the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because brethren, the word of God is clear in Romans chapter 1 that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone, everyone who believes. Today, we will see a, somebody much more brutal than Jihadi John becoming radically saved in our text And the response of this man, Nebuchadnezzar, is that he wants everybody to know it. He wants everybody to know this one true God. And so, if you would, we're going to, I know we read the heart of the passage in our scripture reading. I'm going to read the surrounding text. Um, So, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9, and then um, 28 to the end of the chapter. So, if you'll follow along with me. Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the peoples and nations of men of every language that live on earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and the wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, and how mighty are his wonders. And his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. And I saw a dream and it made me fearful. And these fantasies, as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon that they might make known to me the interpretation of this dream. Then all the magicians and conjurers and Chaldeans and diviners came in and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. But finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream, which I have seen along with this interpretation. And then Daniel speaks. We had that read in our scripture reading, and now in verse 28. 
All of this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king, and 12 months later he was walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon. And the king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and the glory of my majesty? While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beast of the fields, and you will be given grass to eat like cattle for seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows, on, or bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and he began eating grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. My counselors, my nobles began seeking me out, and so I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Let's pray. Father, we are absolutely humbled at such an account as this. Lord, we know that Your Word is inerrant, and it is inspired as God-breathed, and we know that it contains nothing but truth. And so, Lord, we thank You for this account that we have before us today. We thank You, Lord, for Your marvelous and amazing grace. We thank You, Lord, that most of us here have already received that amazing grace. We are thankful, Lord, that those of us who are in Christ are dressed in the righteousness of Christ and we are seen as righteous before You. And so now, Lord, as we come to Your Word to open it up and to lay it before our eyes and our mind's eye, Lord, would You speak to our hearts by Your Spirit. Would You send the Spirit to illuminate the Word, to put light upon the Word. And Lord, may it be driven deep down into our hearts that the lessons here would not be quickly forgotten, but that they would remain with us forever. We thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in the midst of an exposition in Daniel, going at a fairly fast clip, one chapter per week. I hope you're rereading these chapters, or at least on Lord's Day evening, to refresh and to understand the, the whole message of Daniel. The purpose of the book of Daniel is to encourage the exiles. God's people had sinned. God had sent, allowed them to be captured and sent into Babylon for 70 years. In chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar had another dream. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. It was a terrifying nightmare. He was 
fearful. And, and Daniel, well, the wise men couldn't interpret it. He orders them all wiped out. Of course, Daniel comes to save the day. He, and, and in that case, he wouldn't even reveal the dream. So Daniel had to tell the dream and its interpretation. And then in chapter 3, and well, within that dream... Remember, there was the, the image of a man, the head of gold, which was Nebuchadnezzar, and the, the chest of silver, and, and so on, representing different kingdoms. Well, Nebuchadnezzar's response to that we saw last week. He does, he's not content with the head of gold. He built an image 90 feet tall and 9 foot wide of solid gold, saying, this represents me and my greatness and my kingdom. Well, of course, he gives orders to everyone must bow down to that, and those um, wise men who couldn't interpret the dream and their jealousy come up and say, I see these three guys that are not bowing down. And so they report them. And so there's this interchange between Nebuchadnezzar and uh, these men. And, and of course, they're thrown in the fiery furnace and God delivers them. Um, and so we've seen Nebuchadnezzar being a man of passion and anger and rage and all of these things. And and it's interesting, at the end of chapter 2 and 3, he makes some concession that the God of Daniel is the one true God because he recognizes his own deficiency, but yet it's only lip service until we get to our chapter today. So brethren, today as we come to chapter 4, obviously Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. Once again, Daniel's the only one that can interpret it. It's important to understand that ancient Babylon Though it was humanistic, it was a very religious city. They had idols and everything all around that they would worship and, and, and esteem as gods. But they had many gods, and specifically they were against one god, the god of Israel. And you see that repeated in history, and finally the invasion into Judah, um, where many Jews were captured for these 70 years. Of course, at that point, Nebuchadnezzar continues to conquer the world. And Jeremiah 46 and verse 2, it says, To Egypt concerning the army of Pharaoh, Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the Euphrates River at Carchemish, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Babylon had become the strongest superpower in the world at this time. And, of course, Nebuchadnezzar was a Chaldean, and, and Babylon represents anything and everything that glorifies man and lifts man up, a very humanistic center. And, of course, you see this theme, and I sent it out on the email to the church last night, of just kind of a history of, of Babylon and actually images of what Babylon likely looked like from ruins and so forth. Um, <clears throat> but it's interesting that how Babylon is referred to. I mean, you see it in the Tower of Babel back in Genesis 10 and 11. You see it throughout Revelation. And for example, Revelation 17.5, Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots, and the abominations of the earth. Babylon's not a nice place to live. <laughs> Babylon is not a very pleasant place for the one that fears the one true God. I've already mentioned Nebuchadnezzar had given concessions in 247 and 328 at the, at the end of each of these chapters where he makes some lip service. He says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants out of the furnace. So it's... He, he just has not yet been able to bring himself to truly acknowledge 
the God of the Bible. You see, Nebuchadnezzar has seen that Daniel's God is the God who reveals mystery. In chapter 3, we saw Daniel's God is the God that can rescue even from an 1,800-degree fiery furnace. And in this chapter, he's going to learn something else. Daniel's God really does rule the world. He can dispose. He can lift up. Daniel's God is the one true God, and he will recognize that. Now, our text today spans what most believe to be about eight years. Remember, we're moving along. We're covering history rather quickly. About eight years. And there's three primary scenes. And the first is the longest scene where it's in the king's palace. And then at the king's, uh, the roof of the palace, and then finally in the field seven years later. Seven, the word could be seasons, um, it's several years, but maybe not quite seven, but most believe it, it's referring to years. And so the way, another way to think of how the book is structured is, or the book, the chapter is structured, is that it begins with praise to God, it ends with praise to God as bookends, and then there's three reports given in the middle. In each section of those three reports has a central, has, has the emphasis of what the chapter is, and it's verses 17, 25, and 32. And I'll just read at the end of verse 17, in order that the living may know the Most High is the ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliness of men. So first of all, God is sovereign over all earthly kingdoms. Chapter 4 is interesting. It's an account that Nebuchadnezzar wrote himself. It's given in the first person. It's something that he wrote himself, something that's, that's included in this, in this book. And it's very fascinating. And, it, and it's, again, the most unlikely conversion that we would ever expect to read in an Old Testament narrative. And, and here there is what I believe to be a true conversion. So first of all, brethren, verses 1 to 4, we have the backstory. Uh, the backstory. And then if you just flip back there. See, Nebuchadnezzar, first of all, he addresses who? the king and all the peoples and nations and men of every language that live on the earth. Now that's interesting. Does that look familiar to you at all? It's the same um, thing that he wrote when, uh, back in chapter 3 when he was telling them all to bow down to his golden image. It was to all nations. And here he's addressing it to them as well. The narrative is, is written in a poetic way, verses 1 to 18, and then the last four verses are are poetic. And, and as I said, the bookends of the praise of God, it, it begins as it ends. And it's sort of like Psalm 73. Remember Asaph? When he's, 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 he just can't figure out why the wicked are prospering and all of that. Well, that psalm actually began, you know, later he says, until I came into the house of the Lord, then I saw their end. But it's interesting how that psalm begins. It's surely God is good to Israel. So the, the conclusion is thrown at the beginning so you know where he's going in that, and so too with the text that is before us. He's addressing it to every inhabitant in the world. And so we have a beautiful picture here of a king's journey from pride to humility. And brethren, pride is an insidious monster, isn't it? It's an insidious monster that dwells within each one of us to different levels and varying degrees, where we compare ourselves with others, where we glory in our self-accomplishments, as Nebuchadnezzar did. 
And fathers, by the way, happy Father's Day, but the best gift you can give to your wife and your family is to cultivate humility, to lead your families in humility, to acknowledge and to confess your sin when you do blow it. And yes, you do blow it, for there's none who can fulfill this mighty task perfectly. J.C. Ryle says, We are all naturally self-righteous. It is a family disease that all the children of Adam have. It's a family disease. You're all descendants of Adam. You've inherited sin. You've inherited this this self-righteousness. And yet God's grace is manifested to us and humbles us, exposing our pride as He transforms us. Does that mean we perfectly walk in humility? No. But it's that we hate pride, and when we see it, begin to rear its ugly ugly head, we, as it were, lop it off with the sword of the Spirit. Ian Duguid acknowledges that sometimes when those that walk in pride, he says that God will disturb the calm waters of their peaceful lives, whether it's a career, career hopes that are dashed for whatever reason, whether it's a marriage that's utterly destroyed, whether it's a, a, a cancer diagnosis or whatever the situation may be, God is able to humble the proud. And so we see here, verse 4, again the backstory: I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. So that's the backstory. He's got it all. He's got the palace. He's conquered the world. He, he has everything, and now he's finally at, a, at ease. But then, verse 5, there's a radical change. Look at verse 5. I saw a dream, and it made me fearful. And these fantasies, as I lay on my bed, and the visions in my mind, notice, kept alarming me. Notice the stark contrast to being at ease and kicking back to being alarmed and startled, and a radical change has taken place. Here it is. The strongest king in the world, the one that conquered the whole world, is suddenly fearful and alarmed. The next couple verses, again, he's seeking out the wise men, and finally, Daniel is the one who comes. And, and it's notice, he says it twice, verse 8 and 9, that he's endowed with the spirit of the holy gods. And, and, and it's just a, a phrase that because they believed in so many gods, but that, that this is uh, one that truly knows mysteries. The only other place that occurs in the Old Testament is referring to Joseph in Genesis 41. But unlike like chapter 2, this time Nebuchadnezzar is free to tell his dream of this huge tree, this universal scope. And, and notice it down in verse 10. It's, it says that the tree was large, it became strong, its height reached the sky. By the way, notice the parallels to the Tower of Babel. They were building the tower so it would reach the sky. Again, humanistic achievement. Uh, It was visible to the ends of the whole earth. This foliage, foliage, verse 12, is beautiful and its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. And the beasts of the field found shade over it. And the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches. And all the creatures fed themselves from it. He's had it all. He's very fruitful and prosperous. But in verse 13... Suddenly, a holy one comes down, lops the tree down. Look at it in verse 13. And as I was looking in the visions of my mind, and I lay on the bed, behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. 
And he shouted out and spoke as follows. So the next few verses, you have a quote of the angelic watcher, probably an angel of some sort. We're not told exactly. But notice what, what chopped down the tree, cut off its branches, strip its foliage, scatter its fruit, let the beast of the field or beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. And then notice in verse 15, and leave the stump and its roots in the ground and band it with iron and bronze around it. What a poor result of what the king was before, that just merely a stump. But notice, leave the roots and the stumps that there are some signs of life. But in the middle of verse 15, notice with me, but let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Nebuchadnezzar suddenly comes to the realization that this tree, as though he already kind of knew it, but it's talking about him. It's talking about the tree first, but now it's let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. A reoccurring theme throughout the Old Testament is that God punishes proud kings who come to think that they are gods. You see it again and again in Isaiah and Ezekiel and the prophets in particular. And then in verse 17, well, verse 16, let his mind be changed from that of a man and let a beast's mind be given to him. Let seven periods of time, you might have a marginal note, years, it could be seasons, um, of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers and the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that all the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. So there you have it. Nebuchadnezzar had conquered it all. Suddenly he has another dream and he's greatly disturbed by this dream and Daniel lays it out. Well, now he's going to lay it out uh, in the interpretation. Verses 19 to 27. Notice in verse 19, first of all, it's, it says that he was appalled and his thoughts alarmed him. Isn't that interesting? Because the dream had the same effect on Nebuchadnezzar, and now Daniel's just merely the one that's interpreting it. And, and he's alarmed. He's, he's appalled. And, and obviously, I think we might know why this is by now. I think Daniel knows Nebuchadnezzar's reputation after 25 to 30 years from chapter 1, and that's about the time frame we're in. He knew that Nebuchadnezzar was given to rage and anger. He knew that how many of his own wise men that, that he attempted to slay and how violent he was and how he heated the furnace supposedly seven times hotter. But yet Daniel is very diplomatic here. Look at what he says in the middle of the verse. He says, My Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you in its interpretation to your adversaries. Seeks to be dip- diplomatic here. But then he goes on, the tree which you saw, which became large, and down to verse 22, it is you, O king. For you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty had become great and reached the sky, and your dominion to the end of the earth. In that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump in its roots in the ground, and band it with iron and bronze. In the f- new grass of the field, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share 
with the beast of the field until seven periods of time have passed. It is you, O king. God is able to take the one who thinks of himself in godlike terms and completely humble him. In verse 25, he says, or verse 24, in this, interp- this is the interpretation, O king. This is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon the Lord the King, that you may be driven away. And again, the end of verse 25 repeats um, the purpose of this, which is really the purpose of our text. It's interesting, verse 25, when it talks about driven away from mankind, there's even nuances to the Garden of Eden because when Adam sinned and Adam and Eve sinned, they were driven out from the Garden. And it actually specifically states that they were to eat the plants of the field. There's a little parallelism there. But at the end of verse 25, there is a hope of restoration in that the stump will remain. The stump and the iron and the bronze over it to protect it. Now, it's interesting today, if you think about with our computer error, if you want to put emphasis on uh, an email or a text or something like that, what do you do? We have the freedom to put on all caps. You can underline. You can. Uh, some people write all their emails all caps. You're not sure to tell if it's they're yelling at you or what. But uh, anyway, but uh, or you can bold it. You know, certain parts you can emphasize. Well, the ancient writers did not have that liberty, and so how they would make emphasis, what they wanted you to the takeaway, is repetition. And think of it, the angels, holy, holy, holy. God is holy. That's the takeaway, right? And here you have three times in this chapter that Nebuchadnezzar wrote three times the purpose for why he's writing. And I've already emphasized it again and again in verse 17, verse 25, and we'll see it again in verse 32. And so that is the emphasis here in this text, that God is is able to make known and and to remove kingdoms and raise kingdoms that the Most High is the ruler over the realm of mankind. And He sets over it even the lowliness of men. Verse 27, interesting, as He rounds out the interpretation, notice what Daniel does. He offers some biblical counsel. We have a biblical counseling conference next weekend that you're all invited to up in Escondido. Um, But Daniel gives some counsel here. Look what he says, Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. So remember verse 19, when he began, he's trembling, he's appalled about how am I going to tell the king this stuff and save my neck, right? He, He gives the full interpretation, and then he's so bold by the end of it that he's offering this advice. May my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness, and from your iniquities, by showing mercy to the poor, in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. That word prosperity is related to the word in verse 4, the ease, so that God might extend your time. Notice he he focuses on one one of Nebuchadnezzar's primary sins. And that is showing the lack of showing mercy. Again and again, God speaks of those that oppress the poor and the needy, the widow and the orphan, that God hates those who terrorize them. 
And he has destroyed cities. He's executed thousands. He's made many, many into slaves. He's treated so many harshly. And so Daniel here, as a true prophet, sounds like the prophets. For example, in Isaiah 1, seek justice and rescue the oppressed. Many of the prophets would would have that message somewhere in their message. And so Daniel, as a prophet, is setting forth the idea that God in His infinite mercy may has the prerogative and may or may not postpone judgment that is coming to you. Cut off your sins. Repent of your sins. Do righteousness. Cut off your iniquities. For example, in Jeremiah 18, we see an example of this as well. At one moment, I might speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, and to destroy it. But if that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I have planned to bring upon it. See the same thing in regards to King Ahab, where there's a remorse, I don't think a converting grace in 1 Kings 21. Also with King Josiah, 2 Kings 22, 8 and following, if you want to look at those later. So here, in our text, we have Daniel giving the interpretation. He lays it out as it is. He gives this this message, this advice, this biblical counsel, as it were, to cut off your sins. Throw yourself upon the mercy of God. And sometimes God will bring circumstances to show us the outcome of our lives if we continue down the present course of sin. And even though the king did not humble himself, God's mercy is magnified here because there is another year before this is actually enforced. Ian Duguid again says, the eyes of pride are always focused on self and performance and it leaves no room for looking up to God. And Nebuchadnezzar is so enthralled with himself that he hears even the interpretation, but he continues on like business as usual. Daniel was not afraid to tell this pagan king God's standard of righteousness. Uh, Psalm 82, the idea of uh, justice for the weak and the needy. So moving on, beware of pride and arrogance, verses 28 to 33. Now we move, we shift from... uh, the palace to the palace roof here. In verse 28, the king, it says, in verse 29 actually, 12 months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace. And the king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Now just look and circle at the personal pronouns First person uh, pronouns there. Uh, In the first person, speaking of himself. I, myself, my, my. This is what I have accomplished, he thinks. Again, Babylon, the uh, epitome of human achievement and earthly glory. Now, Babylon itself was an incredible city. Rectangle-shaped, walls some 45 feet high, uh, 85 feet thick at its um, widest part. There were... Some say that there's two bands of walls, or or two walls and then two inner walls, a total of four walls, but some were 21 feet thick, 25 feet thick, 
the, the, the strongest and largest was 85 feet thick. The top was tall enough for chariots to race across it and for a chariot to turn around. So that's how wide the top of the wall was. Eight massive gates, many watchtowers put all the way around it. A nearly impossible to invade, but it would be invaded. Uh, there was a tower called the Zuferet Tower, that, which was, had seven levels to it and reportedly was 288 feet high like a 30-story building in height. Absolutely amazing. And Nebuchadnezzar could see all of this. He had three palaces scattered within the city, but this one that he was on was probably the most prominent where he could see all of that. He could see all of this. That isn't this wonderful what I have accomplished? And of course, one of his greatest works was the procession street that went down the middle of it from the Ishtar Gate, 62 feet wide, 1,000 yards long, and along it, and those were those images, the, those reliefs, glazed tiles of real life-size lions and, and other animals lining it. The, the, the street itself, all these imported stones were brought in from all around the world and placed very meticulously. And, and he could see all of this from his palace roof. Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built? Of course, one of the seven wonders of the world, the hanging gardens, right? He imported that to bring it over for his wife because, because she was from the mountainous areas, apparently. So he's looking at all this. Of course, the Ish Targate uh, and its glazed bricks were discovered by German archaeologists and could be seen, I think, some of that in Berlin even today. Well, John Calvin said this, God intended him to be more and more blinded as he is accustomed to treat the reprobate and even his elect at times when men add sin to sin, God loosens his reins and allows them to destroy themselves. Afterwards, he either extends his hand toward them or withdraws them by his hidden virtue or reduces them to, to order by his rod and completely humbles them. He treated Nebuchadnezzar this way. In verse 31, we see that while the word was still in the king's mouth, he hears his voice, your sovereignty has been removed from you. And this word came true for Nebuchadnezzar uh, at that moment. Previously, all this lip service of who God was did nothing to help him now. Finally, God said, enough, enough. God is able to humble the proud. The proverb says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. So he begins to take on the characteristics of an animal instead of a man. He lived like a cow for seven periods, perhaps years. And, and, and you read this and you say, is this, are we, is this really true? Could, could somebody really begin to have the mind of an animal? And you think that's, that's bizarre, right? Well, I mean, in our current era, and where we're living the last five to ten years, uh, about skin colors and you know, genders and all of this, it shouldn't really shock us. And yes, this condition is actually in medical journals. It's called zoanthropy. And the most recent example, it's very rare, uh, is in, was in England in the 1940s. Uh, but it has it as, as its root of, uh, basic definition, a loss of personal identity and a conviction that one is an animal. In other words, it's a mental illness in which somebody believes this. And that's what happened in Nebuchadnezzar. And, and look at it at the, in the middle of verse 33. And, 
This is amazing. He's eating grass like cattle. His body's drenched with the dew of heaven. And notice, until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers. You can picture it matted and uncombed or whatever. And then his nails were like bird's claws. You know, when you don't clip your nails, I remember some of these guineas book of records things, you know, and there's people, I don't know why they would want to grow their nails like seven meters long, but they do so they can get into the book and it's pretty gross, you know. And so we don't know how long his nails got, but it looked like, I mean, it was, it was long enough to curve to look like bird claws. And so he begins to take on the characteristics of a, of a, of a beast. Isn't that amazing, kids? I, I, I can't even imagine this. This is, this is fascinating. And so remember in chapter 1, he's eating his rich food and his beautiful wine. And now he's eating grass. Rather than being housed and sleeping in his palace, and who knows how that bed was made comfortable for him, he's laying in the field in the open air, in the dew, instead of his cushy bed. God is sovereign. He's able to humble the proud. And then despite Nebuchadnezzar's pride, he sends him out, and then we see something wonderful in the last couple verses. Verse 34, But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored Him who lives forever. He's completely humbled here. God is mighty to save individuals. One of the doctrines in our confession, one that we hold to, is effectual calling. And effectual calling is rooted in the fundamental belief that we are totally depraved, unable to come to God apart from a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And an effectual calling, in our confession, chapter 10, paragraph 1, it says... Those whom God has predestined unto life, He is pleased at His appointed time and acceptable time to effectually call by His Word and Spirit them out of a state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually, savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh and renewing their wills. And I think that's what I'm seeing right here as I'm reading this. At the end of the period, I what? I raised my eyes towards heaven. Notice it doesn't, and then the next phrase is, and then my reason returned to me. Your reason doesn't return to you until you actually acknowledge the God of heaven. Then you can think clearly. And then he has this thoroughly reformed confession of faith. In verse 34, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Again, acknowledgement that God rules in complete sovereignty. He has exclusive sovereignty. In fact, it says twice, verse 34 and 36, and right here in verse 36, at that time my reason returned to me. And, and so he says that twice, but again, it's first he looks up to heaven. It's interesting, earlier in the chapter, he's on the palace roof looking what? Down upon everything. But now that he's humbled to the dust or the, the grass, the dewy grass, he can do nothing but what? Look 
up and he acknowledges the God of the Bible. Brethren, the gospel is a very humbling message. We can only experience salvation when we come with empty hands. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. When we package up nice and neatly in the suitcase of our good works and we come to God, I'm ready to come to you, God, and I have all my good works to prove it. Forget it. (laughs) That will not get you to God. The, The true message of the gospel is that we contribute nothing to our salvation. We cling to Christ by faith alone, and He is pleased to save us. How can we exalt in self if our eyes are fixed on Christ? As we run the Christian race and our eyes are fixed on Christ, that is the cure for pride, is to have your eyes on Christ. Now it's interesting that Scripture does not mention Nebuchadnezzar again except in the next chapter, and we'll see that next week, and that's probably 23 years later. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll cross that when we get to it. But, and, and some question the, the sincerity of his conversion. I, again, the word, this is the Word of God. I, I truly believe that God is able to save the worst of sinners. We read the Apostle Paul earlier. Um, he even thought himself to be the worst of sinners. We studied Jonah a while back. And remember the mass uh, revival that took place in Nineveh. A bunch of pagans converted. Of course, the whole city was overthrown a hundred years later, but that's not to to undermine what God has done. You study church history. You see the revivals, the, the Welsh revivals, the First and Second Great Awakening, the revivals under Whitfield's preaching in England. These were real revivals that took place where it's estimated that the population of Christians had actually dropped to 5%, and at some cases and in some cities, it became 50% were converted. That is a work of God, where He is pleased to make the, the presence of His Spirit especially known. Brethren, God is mighty to save. Verse 36, that stump, we see that stump that was preserved. When my reason had returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom, my counselors and nobles began seeking me out and I was reestablished in my sovereignty with surpassing greatness added to me. Okay, so that stump that was preserved was so that he would get his kingdom back for a season. But now he's ruling in humility, we trust. Verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways are just, and he is able to humble those that walk in pride. What a fitting concluding statement. Well, how does this apply to us? We're sitting around here in the year 2015. We've just studied uh, something from somewhere around 550 B.C., uh, something that took place 2,600 years ago. How does this apply to us? Is there any relevance for this Old Testament narrative for us today? Well, first of all, it's more than a story. It is God's revealed truth. It is God's holy word, brethren. And I mentioned it. We already looked at 1 Timothy. But a beautiful picture here that Paul says in verse 13, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor, And yet, I was shown mercy. 
Yes, the grace of our Lord was more than abundant. And he goes on to say that he is the chief of sinners. Brutal Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who knows how many he has executed and how many idols that he has erected and how many he has caused to worship uh, of false gods, full of pride and arrogance, and yet God radically saves him. Brethren, who is it that you have said to yourself, God could never save that person? That coworker of mine that just continues to tell stories of his, his deplorable life and his wicked life, God could never save him. Maybe it's some adult children that you have that, that are out there in the world and just have uh, plugging their ears and don't want to hear anything about the Word. Or maybe it's a parent or a grandparent or an uncle or a cousin. Don't give up. God is able to save. When you and they least expect it. Isn't that a wonderful thing? It often comes when you least expect it. God works powerfully and marvelously. So brethren, do not lose heart praying for those loved ones. Don't miss the, the hope that this gave to these afflicted exiles. What an encouragement this must have been for the Jews as they would hear of this account. Those that were in captivity. And, and so too for us as, as the New Testament church, we're exiles in a sense living in the world. This world is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. We've been reminded that God has not forgotten His suffering people as we see His hand again and again, even during this captivity. Next, Christ has brought low those who thought they ruled with an iron fist. Those that thought they ruled that nobody could ever take them down. And and even in the last few years, we've seen dictators removed from Egypt and Iraq and Tunisia and and other places, and, and, and God is able to remove them so easily and so quickly. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Jesus Himself, it appeared that Satan got the victory when He was nailed to the cross. It appeared that Satan was, was, was running victory laps, but Jesus victoriously rises from the dead and conquers death and the devil. His kingdom has powerfully came. Our text says three times that the Most High is sovereign over mankind. And Jesus said to Pilate, you would have no power over me unless it was given from above. John 19 and verse 11. Earlier in the same Gospel, John 12, 31, now the ruler of this world has been driven out, speaking prophetically of what would happen just days later with his death. In Luke chapter 10, the 70 come back and, and, and they, they're rejoicing with joy. They're saying, Lord, even the demons were subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. In Revelation chapter 20, there's a picture that Satan is bound. He's bound with a chain. That doesn't mean he's completely destroyed and in the lake of fire. He's bound with the chain and I think he can run different directions with that chain, but it's limited under God's control. He is bound since Christ has risen from the dead. Someday he will be released just before the second coming. And of course, the Lamb will indeed conquer him. 
If you're here today and you're outside of Christ, I have a word for you very briefly. Don't allow your proud heart to win the day. You've just heard a story that God is able to humble the most proudest and the most accomplished as far as in the world's eyes goes. Will you reject the one and only true God? Will you see Christ on the cross bleeding and dying for those for whom He came to die? Making atonement for our sins. You are not beyond the grace of God. My friend, God has power to deliver you from whatever sin, but you must repent and turn from your wicked ways. Humble yourself before God and come to Him. And, and, and maybe some of you are unconcerned about your future. Maybe you think this is science fiction. Someday the real reality will come hard and fast to you. And hopefully it will not be when you pass from this life and you enter punishment. When you realize that there was and is a reigning God. Some of you might be bitter about your parents making you come to church. Really? Do we have to go again? Can't we stay home and watch football, go to the beach? Can't we do this? Can't we do that? And you're bitter towards them because you are, you're asked to come to church and, and, and maybe you resist your parents' restrictions. If only I could go to the party on Friday night like all the other kids at school or whatever, these kinds of things. Be careful. God may just give you what you want. God may allow you to go out into the world, to turn 18, to go ahead and just live your life to the fullest wickedness, to sow your wild oats, as it were. And God may allow you to catch AIDS or some other sexually transmitted disease in your promiscuity. God may allow you to become hooked on drugs so that you're in the gutter. God may allow you in your pursuit of pleasure to completely humble you. God may allow you to hurt somebody physically, somehow or another. Some accident, driving drunk down the road and and killing an innocent person. God may allow you to fulfill your desire for freedom from, from the parent's authority, from the authority of the church, to go live for yourself, to reap what you have sown. And that is not a pleasant thing. So don't harden your heart, young people, I beg you. Cry out to Christ for salvation. You will experience not only joy like you've never known, but peace that you will never know apart from Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank You that You are able to humble the proud. We thank You, Lord, that many of us can give testimony to this very thing And Lord, even as Christians, we we experience this ongoing humbling. Oh God, we thank You that You rule from heaven. That You are mighty to save. Lord, we are humbled by this illustration of the powerful grace of God. We are amazed at the just considering that the Son of God would give His life for unworthy sinners on the cross. We thank You for Jesus. We thank You for His righteousness. We thank You that He cried on the cross, it is finished. We thank You that we do not have to fret and run here and there trying to earn our salvation, but that we can rest in the finished work of Christ. 
O Lord, teach us. Teach us to walk in You. Teach us to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. As it says in the book of Micah, O Lord, may Your Word not return void today. We beg in Jesus' name. Amen.